Welcome to Latin American Intersections, where we explore the intersection of business, geopolitics, and social impact in the Latin American and Caribbean region. Our team is here to bring you the insights you need on current events from leaders and experts in the public, private, academic, and civic sectors. Latin American Intersections is presented by Ozilold Group, a consultancy focused on stakeholder relations and alternative risk reduction, building collaborations across sectors and industries to improve outcomes for clients and communities. Please keep in mind that the opinions, ideas, and information discussed on this podcast are those of the individual host and guest and do not necessarily reflect the official stances of organizations they are affiliated with. Be sure to follow at LATAM Podcast on your social media, share an episode or two with your friends, and send us your questions about the region. And don't forget to rate us on any of your favorite podcast apps. Tonight, we're talking about Venezuela, and more specifically about Venezuelan politics and the Venezuelan military and the recent election results that surprised absolutely nobody. And to do this, I have asked Dr. John Polga of the U.S. Naval Academy to join me. Now, mind you, as we are recording this episode, we might experience a couple of hiccups as we're new to the uh, recording equipment and software that we're using. So bear with us. I guarantee you it'll be worth it to hear from Dr. Polga on this topic. So without further ado, John. Good afternoon, Michael. Hi, John. How are you? I'm well. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Um, everyone, as I said in um, the previous segment, uh, I have Dr. John Polga as, how do you pronounce the rest of your last name, John? Polga Hekimovich. Hekimovich. So I have Dr. John Polga on the line, um, who is a professor of political science at the U.S. Naval Academy and has collaborated on various projects on topics of Latin America in both Spanish and English, apparently, including uh, Venezuelan military culture, which was published by Florida International University's Jack D. Gordon Institute of Public Policy. Um, John, thank you for speaking with us today. And can you give us just a little summary of your work in the LAC region and in regards to Venezuela? Sure, Michael. Thank you very much for the invitation to, to talk to you today. Um, I have, I did dissertation field work in Venezuela, Ecuador, looking at executive power and, and the relationship between presidents and, and their bureaucracies. And as part of that, I uh, interviewed military officers in, in those countries and examined the way that Latin American presidents turn to their militaries sometimes to carry out social development projects and, and things that normally in the United States we would consider to be in the domain of, of our federal bureaucracy outside of the military. Uh, and as a result of that, that was work between like 2012 and 2014. And as a result of that, um, I became interested in the way that, that President Hugo Chavez, uh, the, the ex-president of Venezuela, as well as the current president, Nicolas Maduro, used their decree powers to, to govern the country 
and then how they relied on the military to carry things out. Uh, and as a result, I, I've published some things relating to the Venezuelan military, relating to political power in the country, political instability of the country, and, uh, and the like. Um, I'm also married to a, a Venezuelan woman, so, and I, we were married in Venezuela. And so I uh, keep abreast of, of the, the news in that country uh, pretty much every day. Um, so yeah. uh, de- definitely it's, it's, it's probably the country that I follow the most closely besides the United States. Understandable. You have both professional and personal connections to the country. Um, definitely. So, so definitely a lot of interest there on your part. And are there any projects you're currently working on that you can tell us about that might be interesting? Maybe summarize that about. Sure. Um, I have a, a peer-reviewed journal article that, that I am uh, working on, or a revise and resubmit. So I've been asked to, to resubmit an article relating to uh, civilians' attitudes in Venezuela towards, towards the military. And uh, basically what I show using public opinion survey data is that people's opinions towards the military are almost uh, perfectly predicted by their opinion towards the government. And that means that in such a politicized, in a, excuse me, in a polarized country, uh, if you are pro-government, you will be pro-military. If you're anti-government, you'll be military And that's interesting because it is different from what we find in the rest of the region where generally the military and sometimes the Catholic church are the institutions with the highest degrees of public approval. And in Venezuela, that is uh, really, really low. Uh, I'm also working on a couple of book chapters right now, one on uh, organized crime in Venezuela and another one examining uh, the effects of weak state capacity in Venezuela on a host of things, right? And the provision of government services as, as well as a growth of, uh, criminal groups and, and violence and things like that. Oh, very good. Um, so, you know, it'll be exciting to see what uh, comes of those projects as well. Um, I hope you'll get back on the show to share those with us as they uh, come to fruition. Um, Thank you. So, but let's go ahead and launch into some of our questions at this point. Um, sure. So as we said before, you are kind of an expert on the uh, Venezuelan military. You collaborated in the uh, project, the Venezuelan Military Culture Project that I mentioned before. Uh, before we move into some of those more specific questions, what, um, let me give a little background here. So Venezuela just had its elections, which were considered sure. by most of the international community, while That's the country right. itself is in the midst of an economic crisis that has led to a regional refugee crisis, as it were. Um, this has been growing exponentially. And in light of these factors, what's your views on the potential longevity of the current regime, of the Maduro regime? Nicolas Maduro won the election, um, and that, of course, surprised no one. Uh, but right. what do you think are the chances of this regime? What, what do you see of its chances of, of continuing on through the next four to six years? Well, that's a great question, and, and obviously I'm going to have to speculate. And on the face of things, you would think, huh, this is a country in dire crisis, a humanitarian crisis, an economic crisis, and, you know, to be honest, a political crisis. And, and given that, you would think that the government would be pretty unstable. Uh, but what, what the president has done, what President Nicolás Maduro has done is tie his 
future to that of senior military officials, as well as other senior uh, civilians in, in the government. So basically, uh, you know, a change in, in the president would mean an end to many of the benefits that those groups enjoy. As a result of this, uh, you know, I, I think he's been able to last a whole lot longer than a lot of observers and analysts expected. And I think that he might even endure uh, into 2019, right? That being said, I don't think that four to six years is is that reasonable. I, you know, if I were a betting man, I would probably bet against that. Now, that might be a comforting thought to some people um, with, you know, both in the international community and many Venezuelans, you know, the possibility that this particular regime won't last, uh, won't, won't last an entire cycle. But sure, I guess, so you think basically the country is not going to change overnight. So even no. if Nicolas Maduro regime does not continue on past a certain point, what is the follow-on to that? Is it, you know, we move into a day after scenario where we can fix it? Right. Or is this going to be more business as usual? Are we going to have more corrupt characters fill that vacuum? Yeah. We're asking for are you, are, the ball right here. But Are you a football fan, Michael? Uh, I'm a rugby fan. You're a rugby fan. I can't make a good rugby analogy. and Unfortunately, it has to be like a football one. Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm a, I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan. And the Vikings always, for 20 years, they've, they've had a rotating cast of characters uh, at quarterback. And the fan base, we always look at the, the shaky starting quarterback and we always, uh, we pine for the backup. Whoever the backup is, it doesn't even matter, right? We always want that backup. And the backup is inevitably worse than that starter. And I think uh, we can see something similar with Venezuela, right? The person most likely to succeed Maduro right now in government is not someone from the opposition who, who many people in, you know, who oppose the government hope will take power. Instead, it's, it's most likely to be someone from within the, the governing Chavista movement, right? Um, and no. and that, would, that would mean either a doubling down or a continuation of many of the policies that have put Venezuela in the position it's, it's currently in, right? In terms of, of opposition candidates, there's a scenario in which, you know, there, there would be free and fair elections. I, I, maybe not in a very likely scenario, but at least a scenario exists in which there are free and fair elections. And Hi, John. Are you back on with me? Yes. Excellent. Okay, so um, we got interrupted there. Uh, just so everyone knows, we have some growing pains uh, figuring out how to use um, our equipment in this app uh, called Anchor App. Um, it's actually really excellent for um, creating podcasts, uh, collaborative podcasts between um, whoever uh, is in your industry or your field or whoever you want to interview. Uh, the, uh, so we're kind of trying that out. We're seeing how it works. Uh, unfortunately, we got uh, we had a call drop. Uh, but let's pick up right from where we left off for the segment. So, uh, John, basically, uh, you were going over a uh, what you see as the mm, potential for uh, what kind of what what we can expect when the political vacuum is filled 
if the Maduro regime uh, doesn't uh, continue on very long. So go ahead. Sure. I, w I was in an extended metaphor that I should just shorten and, and say that basically it seems most likely that, that Maduro's replacement will be someone from within the governing Chavista movement. Uh, whether that's a hardliner like Diosdado Cabello or Tarek al-Aisami or someone else. Uh, and that would mean kind of business as usual, right? There you might be some some modifications by to his, policy. You think that that vacuum would be filled by his close associates or someone from a from maybe another um, line of, of Chavistas? Yeah, so, well, that, that, that's one possibility is his close associates. And the second possibility is from someone else within Chavismo who's I guess more moderate, although there aren't a ton of moderates left um, running the country right now. Uh, that would be kind of my, my second guess. My third guess would be somehow either the military or someone from the opposition. Um, right. Oh, let's, the problem is if, if, if you look at the profile of national political figures in the country, um, someone who can unify the country, I'm not sure that person exists right now in Venezuela. And honestly, that's a sad thing to hear. I guess uh, that kind of leads into my next couple of questions, though, and that is about the Venezuelan military. So, sure. Uh, you, so, what do you think the likelihood is that the that the Venezuelan military would step up and actually uh, take over in a power vacuum? Sure. Uh, you know, in, in some sense, there was, I think, an irresponsible um, op-ed this week in Foreign Policy, written by Jose Cardenas. Uh, in, in which he says, it's called, it's time for a coup in Venezuela. Only nationalists in the military can restore legitimate constitutional democracy. I, I, I disagree with that premise. And, and, you know, I think that if the military were to overthrow the government, guess what? All senior ranking military members are Chavistas. And so they would likely appoint someone else from within Chavismo, right? It seems unlikely that the military itself would govern. They would uh, either probably uh, try to try to push the country towards elections uh, or they would give up power to some successor to Maduro, some kind of extra constitutional uh, successor, right? Whether that be the vice president or, or someone else. Um, the idea that the military is going to be this deus ex machina to, to swoop in and save the day is I think a hope born out of desperation more than anything else. Well, it's almost Hollywood-esque in its in its um, in its scope, <laughs> to be honest. At least from my point of view. Um, Absolutely. What uh, so so given what you just said, I think you somewhat answered this question. But what is the regime's relationship with the with the military like, or how does the military view the regime from what? Uh, you know, from what you see in your in your research and in in your work. Yeah, well, Chavez did this to some extent, and and Maduro has has done it more, and that's a strategy of uh, purges within the the senior ranks and of loyal officers. So purges of of disloyal officers, promotions of loyal officers, and then involvement of those people in in politics, policymaking, and, and allowing them to make money on the side as ways of ensuring their, uh, their fealty to, to the regime. And so kind of all, all high-ranking senior military members, all officers right now uh, in the upper ranks 
are, I guess, quote unquote, chavistas, whether that is born out of um, true ideology uh, or, or simply out of convenience, right? As a result, it's kind of unclear where they're, what might actually happen if Maduro weren't the president, right? To, to understand which of these people would, would possibly defect and which would remain loyal to Maduro. Given their integration with the regime at this point. Um, That's right. Yeah. So now you, you mentioned that uh, they have opportunities to make money on the Venezuelan economy as it is, it, it is in tatters, but as it stands, um, some of the high ranking military members are heavily involved in uh, whatever money can be made on the Venezuelan economy, as it were, um, whether that's, um, you know, has to do with corruption or uh, whether there's drug trafficking involved. Um, we're kind of aware of this going on. Um, yes. I guess my next question is something more for, you know, both, you know, for the public sector as well, but also for the private sector. Um, what are, is the, the current and future political risks uh, that we can associate with the military being involved this deeply with the Venezuelan economy. The the political risks. Could you could you clarify by by political risks what you mean? So, um, if I'm a you know multinational, what kind of risks or what kind of political risks do you see for me um, in any f- oh sure future dealings? Because uh, most most private sector entities are not going to deal with Venezuela right now. But in the future, right. this integration of the Venezuelan economy with the Venezuelan military um, in this, you know, what, what, you know, the day after scenario, um, what kind of what kind of political risk am I running into f- with my business? Sure, if, if I, I can flip that around just a little bit, I think that it doesn't necessarily even have to be the military. I think that that it would depend on what part of the military, right? Not just seeing the the. Fuerza Armada Nacional Bolivariana as, as a single homogenous, cohesive unit, but, but rather looking at it in parts. If you have something, you know, a, a group close to, to Maduro, a, a very hardcore Chavista group that, that comes to power, well, then you're going to see more of the same, and that involves the same risks uh, that, that multinationals and, and the private investment see currently in Venezuela, which is kind of a very unfriendly scenario. Um, if you have anyone from the opposition or opposition-leaning military members that are in power, um, you know, let's hope it's civilians. But but nonetheless, anyone aligned with opposition, then that will definitely be more market-friendly, uh, and you will you will see a I imagine a rapid dismantling of the many controls currency controls, price controls, uh, and controls over, over how private businesses can op- operate in the country. Very good. Um, so basically, I guess the, the main idea for uh, any future investors in Minnesota is to wait for any type of opposition control to actually... Uh... John, did I lose you? there, Michael. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, the, the scenario would be to wait for someone aligned with the opposition, or even, I guess, at this point, you, you would take a, you know, a moderate Chavista, uh, although that is, a, as I said, a, a, a dying breed right now. Absolutely. 
Um, so the, the other thing maybe that uh, we can touch on a little bit then too is will a, let, let's say in a, in a, let's say that the military um, has more power within a future regime as it were, is that military going to be more friendly or less friendly to U.S. prospects given their, uh, their training, their um, arms purchases, and their integration with uh, the Cuban military, their support from, uh, mm. from the Chinese and from the Russians? Can you speak yes. a little bit? Yes. The, since Chavez came to power in 1999, the, the military has... Uh, broken its longstanding relationship with the United States and has definitely pivoted towards Russia and China, and as you say, especially Cuba. And, uh, you know, a, a change in government would mean probably a change in, in that policy. Now, again, that would depend on who comes to power. So I can't imagine things getting uh, worse in terms of Venezuelan-U.S. relations, uh, military relations, but they could say the same, or if you know someone from the opposition were to come to power, they would they would get better for sure. Um, you know, I, I think that especially members of the opposition are anxious to m- rid the country of of Cuban influence, uh, both kind of in, in terms of political advising as well as military advising and and, and intelligence. So uh, that would mark a very important shift. In the in the strategy and makeup of the Venezuelan armed forces, right. And um, to explore this topic further for our listeners, um, there was a recent article. You know, since we're citing Foreign Policy uh, magazine here, uh, there was a recent article by Brian Fonseca, who's the director of the um, Jack D. Gordon Institute of Public Policy at FIU, uh, that was published in Foreign Policy, an article on specific to that. Um, to that topic, as far as what the uh, what the the military's relationship is with um, uh, or what the influence is from Cuba, China, and Russia on uh, the Venezuelan military, and how a military coup may not be quite as beneficial to the United States as um, some individuals, uh, some certain policymakers may believe that that it could be. Um, so it's interesting that those that, that uh, those contrasting articles have come out so close to each other. Uh, the one that you mentioned earlier, and uh, the one by Brian, uh, who hope to have on the show at some point here to discuss that further. Uh, so- he, he's an excellent voice and very knowledgeable about this. And and that foreign policy article that he wrote is is a wonderful one. Uh, and listeners should should definitely check it out. Absolutely, um, and and it's a concise article too. So it's not uh, you don't need a whole afternoon to read definitely take about 10 minutes of your day That's right. a lot of good information um so um my last couple of questions uh john for you and um they this is where i really need you to pull out your crystal ball and okay uh, kind of consider uh we there's a lot of talk um i i think a lot of bombast as it were uh when it comes to discussing the potential for military intervention in venezuela uh, whether that's a regional coalition um, amongst Latin American countries and versus whether that's a U.S.-led or just a U.S. military in the country. Um, it's an out there. To, to me, it's an idea that's, that's very much out there. 
but uh, you know, at the same time, people are um, throwing this idea around um, at the upper levels of policymaking. So um, I, I guess my question is, in broad strokes, what you know, what what is the one the possibility of that? Uh, either of those scenarios, uh, you know, regional coalition or uh, a U.S. Uh, intervention. And more importantly, and this is the message that I really want to get to our listeners based on some of the discussions we had before, what are the potential consequences of either of those scenarios? So sure. you can talk on that, uh, take as much time as you need. At the same time, like, let's try and um, make, this, uh, uh, make this very important part of the topic um, as, as consumable as possible to our listeners. Sure. This was brought up, I think, very clearly almost a year ago. I believe it was last August where President Trump uh, mentioned in passing that the United States could could invade Venezuela. Uh, and that made a whole lot of ears perk up when when the leader of the United States says something like that. Um, the possibilities of that happening, however, are very slim. And I think that the idea of a regional coalition cooperating to uh, intervene in Venezuela is is next to nothing right we don't have any examples of this we've had you know uh, incredible internal conflicts in places like the southern cone during the 1970s and and even 1980s the sendero luminoso conflict with the government in peru in the 80s and early 90s and then uh you know the the the, the conflict the long-lasting conflict in colombia that may have finally come to an end and there were never grounds for regional intervention in those places. And I, you know, as a result, I, I think it very unlikely that such a thing would take place today. Uh, the chances of the United States intervening unilaterally are, I guess, marginally higher, although also very slim. And the reason is that Venezuela is, to be very blunt, not as important to the United States as many other parts of the world, right? I think it much more likely the United States would go to war with with some other country or invade some other country than Venezuela, if it were to invade anywhere. Um, I mean, just picking a country out of thin air, Iran, right? Uh, or even North Korea seems more likely than Venezuela. Now, what would happen if the United States were to invade, uh, were to invade Venezuela? I, I don't think that, you know, if, if we learn from history, we should know that 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 generally doesn't lead to to great things. Uh, it's it is not a good first step towards building a consolidated, long-lasting liberal democracy. It generates amongst many in in the population and in that the targeted country. It generates blowback. Uh, it generates blowback amongst obviously the diplomatic community from other countries around the world. It weakens U.S. credibility. Uh, and all, all sorts of other things, right? And basically a host of, of negative consequences. So if you were to evaluate it, kind of just objectively a blank slate of taking out the morality of such, a, such an invasion and looking at it just in terms of the pros and the cons, I think that the cons or the potential cons vastly outweigh the potential pros. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. Um, I, I think in my mind, I've, I've uh, guesstimated, um, and uh, I'm, I'm not sure how many other people can back this up, but that not only would we not really have, the, the, the pros aren't really pros either. 
uh, an invasion and the, the subsequent consequences uh, from, from my perspective would be that we would actually set back Venezuela's economy even further than it already would be in a you know, more peaceful transition scenario or no transition at all. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, the, the possibilities of, you know, working through whatever channels to eventually change whatever policies are, are hamstringing their economy right now um, would have more pros to them than, than an invasion. Um, I guess, and again, you can speak to this directly, if, if you don't mind me interrupting, you can speak to this directly from your own experience in, in Iraq. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, for those that don't know, I, um, I spent time in the military. I went to Afghanistan. Um, I also uh, worked on the civilian side in Iraq for a while. And um, I, I, I mean, it's na Nation Building 101. Um, definitely the, the, the normal standards for that definitely weren't followed. I mean, we, we discussed that on the phone a, a, a few days ago. Um, and, you know, we've seen the outcomes of... Um, of an invasion or of, uh, you know, invasion slash toppling an entire uh, regime and political elite um, and how expensive that was to both uh, the country that, you know, in terms of life and um, that we invaded as well as to our, our own economy. So um, I don't, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. I mean, you know, if there's something you want to add, then, then by all means, but uh, no, I agree. I, I think an invasion is counterproductive in kind of every imaginable way. So uh, I, I, my, my, my advice is that the United States and Europe and, and Latin America, countries that are involved in Venezuela right now and are concerned about Venezuela, uh, should be making diplomatic efforts to change things in that country and give incentives to the governing party and, and the governing regime to to want to step down and leave office and, and make the country a better place. Um, let, let me and some of the parts of that this week. John, let me let me ask you one more um, kind of out there question in this scenario. So um, sure. instead of a, I guess you could call it an uninvited invasion, what if at some point, um, let's say uh, that there's some type of regime change and the Venezuelan military actually invites a regional coalition to, you know, assist, uh, you know, militarily and with humanitarian assistance. Is that a scenario that might work? Um, and how would U.S. involvement in that kind of a sort of uh, invitational uh, intervention work out? In theory, you would imagine with the largest military in the world and obviously the largest in the Western Hemisphere that the United States would play a, a leadership role in that. Uh, however, I, I'm not sure that that is actually the case. Uh, recently, uh, I don't want to misquote the person. I believe it was the uh, Admiral Tid, the the head of Southcom, but I could be mistaken with a person. But a, a senior, someone in a, in a position of senior leadership uh, for the U.S. military in the Western Hemisphere said that the United States was not in a position, the United States military was not in a position to offer humanitarian assistance to Venezuela. Um, now, if that were, you know, if the, the political situation were to change and the military were in power then in, in Venezuela, possibly that could change the U.S.'s calculus as well. I'm not sure. Um, but you would hope 
that if the Venezuelan military asked for humanitarian assistance, that that it would get it. Yeah, definitely, definitely, we have that hope. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of the economies in Latin America, as well as our own, are going through their own um, uh, painful processes here and there. And uh, certainly, a lot of countries are sort of turning inward. And and you know, you, you might hope that they that they provide that kind of assistance, but it may not be quite so forthcoming with it. Um, right. And, uh, uh, one last thing, do you have any um, special insights you'd like to share specific to the current refugee crisis with Venezuela? We're covering I don't. It, you know, uh, considering this is our, our very first episode and we appreciate everyone's patience yeah. to go through our growing pains. But um, uh, one of the things that we haven't really touched on too much is what's going on with refugees. So sure. uh, take a few more minutes and, and um, you know, basically just open floor. Tell me anything that tell, tell our listeners anything that you want to just to talk about on that topic. Well, the, the number of, of Venezuelans left, have left the country over the past five years to a decade is, is hard to, to quantify. Uh, some put it at two million, some as high as four million or more. And the predictions are for the upcoming year or next two years that another 1.5, possibly 2 million Venezuelans will, will leave the country. Uh, that represents an incredible brain drain and the loss of, you know, an, an entire generation or two of, uh, of Venezuelans. And that's incredibly difficult for Venezuela. It is also, it turns out, quite difficult for Venezuela's regional neighbors, especially Colombia and Brazil, which are having to wrestle with the integration of these refugees into um, into their societies as well. And so, you know, the number of Venezuelans living in Chile and Argentina and Peru and Ecuador are also increasing uh, greatly. Uh, and that is, you know, that's a concern for those countries. And, and, and I don't know what the solution is, right? Except for, um, for those countries to cooperate with each other and with Venezuela at trying to make the transition for those people as easy as and painless as possible. Absolutely, and just real quick, specific numbers. Do you know what the um, what the current and projected percentages of the Venezuelan population are that are going to be now outside the country? It could, depending on what those numbers are, it could be as high as ten to fifteen percent of the Venezuelan population. That is absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, that's insane. That, in my wife's family, my, my wife has 24 first cousins. I did this calculation the other day. 24 first cousins. Of those, 18 of them, which is to say 75%, are either li already living outside of Venezuela or are collecting money to immigrate right now. Uh, 13 of them live abroad. Five are trying to go live abroad. So, uh, you know, that's... Uh, They're not all going to... That, there. I mean, we have refugees that are... Uh, relocating all the way to Peru and Chile and Argentina. I mean, right. um, I remember in the early 2000s, I was in Peru and I remember people leaving Peru to go to Argentina, uh, actually even Venezuela at the time. And uh, sure. is around the region and to see that sort of reversed is, um, it's eye-opening and it's not something in, I suppose it- Not in a good way. Yeah. Yes. Um, so yeah, any further things that you'd like to share, John? I have nothing else. I, I 
I really appreciate your time and, and the great questions. Oh, and I appreciate your time as well. I mean, uh, again, this is our first podcast, so uh, you're here for uh, <laughs> you're here for the first. Uh, I'm the guinea pig. All the growing pains. So I appreciate your patience and working with me on this. For uh, for our listeners, just understand that uh, John and I uh, have been going back and forth for about an hour before we finally started recording this thing to uh, <laughs> up to make this happen. <laughs> Audio correct and. Um, so it's it's been a learning experience in that regard as much as very informative to have you here on the podcast. So thank you very much. Um, where can I, I, I hope I'm invited back when, when you have the process down path. Oh, 100%. Um, my next, um, the next big discussion that I'd actually like to have, um, you know, shout out to Brian Fonseca, uh, director of the Jack D. Gordon Institute of Public Policy at uh, Florida International University. Um, I'm sort of known as an FIU fanatic. Um, so basically anything FIU, I love to, um, to uh, 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 keep it in my life and keep it um, and, and highlight it for, for my professional, academic and uh, personal contacts. Um, the other person that um, hopefully we'll have a chance to talk to all as a group is uh, Moises Rendon from CSIS America's program. Um, Wonderful. They recently, uh, uh, Moises and some of his other colleagues uh, recently had the chance to visit both the Brazilian and uh, Colombian border regions, if I'm not mistaken, um, to assess, to actually get eyes on the situation uh, with, in regards to Venezuelan refugees coming across the border, uh, the people that are staying, the people that are just going back and forth, and the people that are moving on to other countries from that uh, launching point. Um, a lot of sad stuff, a lot of interesting stuff, but a lot of stuff that definitely needs exploring. And I think, uh, you know, my my idea is to get uh, as many of the best minds as possible gathered around the table to discuss this on a regular basis. Um, you know, I, I myself will also be going down and um, discussing other topics uh, throughout the region, NAFTA, but one of them, um, NAFTA, the, uh, some of the uh, corruption in Guatemala, um, just any variety of topics. But, uh, but I think Venezuela is probably the, one of the most urgent topics in the region. Um, compared to all the rest. I mean, everything, everything definitely has its place, but, uh, but the, the, the political crisis, the refugee crisis surrounding it, um, the, um, the alliances being, uh, being built or disintegrating down there um, in regards to Venezuela, I think is something that we need to continuously explore as, uh, as it develops. Anyway, um, Thank you, everyone, for listening in. Uh, this has been a discussion with John Polga on uh, various topics of uh, Venezuela, politics, uh, the military, and the refugee crisis. Uh, hope to have you all back on here at our next episode. Um, and uh, this is Michael Scadden signing off. Good night. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Latin American Intersections. If you enjoy our podcast or find it insightful, please be sure to share with your friends and colleagues. Hasta la próxima. See you next time. big thank you to Kasim Sultan of Sad Boy Music, who is working diligently to improve our audio as we develop our production techniques. 
Sad Boy Music offers competitive rates for recording, editing, mixing, mastering, music production, video editing, and motion graphic design. You can follow Sad Boy Music on social media at 5ADB0iMusic.